One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and specifically Brandon from Chicago, and welcome to the History of England, episode 328, Apology, Explosion, Satisfaction. So we come to 1604. King, Queen, family and household all in place, religion sorted, well, according to the King's satisfaction at least. Next up, a bit delayed, was the tradition of a new monarch on the block as it were, the opening of Parliament a little delayed by plague. Now, James had a couple of objectives for his new parliament. There was the most clearly stated objective, which was to redress his subjects' grievances. Now, I'm not doubting James to a degree. He had been very clear in his advice to his son that a king should reign well. But James was also to show that he had limits for his enthusiasm in meeting his subject needs and considerably more enthusiasm for his subjects meeting his needs. The thing that James felt most enthusiastic about was his second objective of becoming king of a united Britain, and he found it very difficult to believe that anyone else would not be absolutely as excited as him about such a thrilling prospect. Whether James's expectations, hopes and fears were realistic must be up for a bit of doubt, It must be, of course, that Salisbury and his English advisers had prepped James thoroughly on the English parliamentary procedures and personal hygiene habits. But it is entirely possible that James was expecting something just a little bit more like home, and without wanting to spoil the plot, he was to find the English version of Parliament more than a little irritating. Let us consider why that might be. So, the Scottish Parliament was unicameral, one chamber, that is, rather than bicameral, i.e. two, as in England. It was composed of the three traditional estates in Scotland, nobles, church, towns, although church was a bit of a movable feast, it has to be said, much debated. But for the moment, let us say that that is so. The agenda for the Scottish Parliament was set by a small group called the Lords of the Articles, and to a degree, that made it easier for the king to control the agenda He could bring stuff forward at the last minute, his MPs could not, they had to submit well in advance, and he could usually nix topics that he didn't like. Oh, we don't want to talk about that, do we? So they wouldn't come up. Parliaments met for a much shorter period, they just met for two to three weeks as opposed to several months in England, and in fact the 1604 Parliament in England would be adjourned 21 times, prorogued five times, and not finally dissolved until February 1611, seven years later. The tradition in Scotland was not for debate. Proposals were simply voted on. Finally, the power of Parliament was not quite what it was in England. It had become accepted in England that statute law required parliamentary approval as well as royal assent, and that statute law so enacted was superior to royal proclamation, which should be used 
merely for administrative orders. Now, James was to kick against this, fair enough, and he had a surprisingly large number of supporters in his view, to be fair, because in Scotland, the king could make law, although he usually did this through a sort of mini, royally selected meeting of his nobility called the Conventions. These conventions were even more easily controlled than Parliament, having as they did a large proportion of royal councillors therein. In addition, the conventions could agree taxes on their own. Now there's a thing, since it had become again accepted for centuries in England that taxes could only be granted by Parliament, although watch this space on that one as well. There will be disagreement on this aspect of England's Parliament, though you may gasp and clutch at your pearls if you are a long-time listener, since I doubt I could count the number of conversations we've had about Parliament voting subsidies for the monarch. Now, it doesn't do actually to overemphasise the difference between English and Scottish Parliaments. The implication sometimes is the Scottish House was a bit of a pushover for the King. It was not. So, while the Lords of the Articles worked away on the agenda, Parliament did sit so by the time voting came about, they had at least been discussing general issues and attitudes for a couple of weeks. Also, it's clear that successful monarchs, James amongst them, had to work hard to manage parliaments effectively to get the right results. And finally, the Scottish Parliament had demonstrated very clearly in 1560 that it could make wholesale and radical changes with or without the monarch's approval, as it did with a Reformation Parliament. And it would show its teeth again, of course to James's son. But that having been said, the English Parliament was the largest representative assembly in Europe, with 78 lords and 467 commons. This meant that it was far too large to be packed with government placemen. It also had a tradition of debate and of thereby being able to control its own agenda. So, for example, one of the first things the 1604 Parliament would debate was what their grievances actually were, so that the king could redress them. So, there they were beavering away, essentially setting the agenda that they wanted, and it probably wasn't going to set the king alight with joy. However, James had all the fun of the fair, opening Parliament grandly and giving a great speech, and make no mistake, James was a man that liked talking. He had in his speech three themes, peace, religion and law. Peace was quite a category. Peace abroad, so interesting. That means we need to stop kicking the Spanish and indeed stop being kicked by the Spanish. But Jimmy slipped a fast one in there. Peace internally too, which he figured meant that his two realms needed to become just one. I imagine in this that James is treating England and Wales as one unit, though it's not clear where Ireland sat in his thinking. Incidentally, he stressed dissent from Henry VII, the man who had united Lancaster and York. Yep, that old chestnut. But for James, of course, this was particularly important. He was making the point that he wasn't a foreigner from an alien land. No, no, he was part of a royal English house and lineage. It turns out that James's other two themes, religion and law, also rather played into James's top priority, which wasn't really to relieve his subjects' grievances, but to become instead the King of Britain. I am the husband, and all the whole isle is my lawful wife, he said, and followed it up with Unus Rex, Unus Grex, and Una Lex, which, as you'll know, of course, means one king, one people, 
and one law in some dead language. Don't shout at me, Latin lovers, but you know, Romanus, Aunt, Domus and all that. In a letter of November 1604 to Salisbury, as we are now, of course, calling Robert Cecil, he explained that he really did mean, specifically, the uniting of both the laws and parliaments of both nations. So, nothing major then. However, at the opening of Parliament, he only asked that the Parliament set up a commission to look at the issues relating to union and report back. Clearly, he was eager to go gently, gently, not to scare the horses. But he did also ask for a change in his styling. I shall be known, he declared, as the black vegetable. No, he didn't actually say that. He said, I shall be known as the King of Great Britain. Now, sadly, that didn't go down as well as he'd hoped. He was no doubt expecting wild applause and cheering. In fact, urged on by one of their members in particular, one MP asked a very difficult question. Hang on, if all the laws of the land which were made by the Parliament of England, would they still be applicable to a place called Britannia? Now, the one member in particular was a man called Edwin Sands. You might recognise the name from the story of the usurpation of the rightful Queen Jane's throne by Mary Tudor. You might remember the image of the Duke of Northumberland throwing gold coins into the air to the crowd in Cambridge Marketplace, laughing manically with despair, while next to him stood the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, Edwin Sands. Now, Edwin Sands survived Queen Mary's reign, mainly by legging it to the continent, where he became one of the Mariana exiles in Zurich, and he seems to have enjoyed being there. On Mary's death, he returned and landed himself a job as the Bishop of Worcester, then the Bishop of London, and finally the Archbishop of York, no less. And all of this as one of the more radical Protestants, and a man with a talent for falling out with people, it has to be said as well. He was nonetheless an active parliamentarian, but he died in 1598 with more than a suspicion of having feathered his own nest, though very probably that reputation is balanced by a very impressive job as pastor of his diocese. Anyway, he married Cecily Wilford, a woman of Kent, and Cecily had nine children, I think, the second surviving of whom was also called Edwin. Now, Edwin Junior appeared to offer no great signs of leadership. For the first 40 of his years, he lived a thoroughly unremarkable life of a member of the gentry, spending time working with the great theologian Richard Hooker and at Middle Temple studying law and marrying and carelessly losing three wives to the Grim Reaper before he married Catherine. The 1604 Parliament, though, was to prove the making of the man. Not in any grand, flag-waving kind of way, but as the quiet, measured, assured and reasonable man of business in Parliament. Reasonable, but no pushover. So, James's proposal for a change in style and union was proceeding relatively smoothly when Edwin got into his hind legs and spoke with careful authority. He pointed out how important this question was, describing it as the weightiest cause Parliament had ever considered. He outlined a series of objections to the idea, including the legal issue we talked about. But most remarkable was his assertion that the king stands not alone and that England sits here 
representatively only. Well, James would have bristled a bit at the first one, but the second bit was the word of a deep and strong believer in representative government. On a matter like this, Edwin was saying, MPs needed to consult with the constituents they represented before giving an answer. This would characterise Sand's approach. He was articulate and measured, but always ready to pick up the cudgel on behalf of Parliament's privileges and authority and the people they represented. And he would be a leading figure in Parliament for the next 20 years. Interestingly, one of the things that allowed this rather ordinary figure in many ways to gain so much weight was a failure of management of the parliamentary process and debate by the Privy Council. Because since James had ennobled so many of them, they were now all sitting in the House of Lords, not in the House of Commons. It is interesting, or at least I find it interesting, sorry about that, since there are plenty of commentators who say that we over-focus on the lower house in James's reign, the House of Commons. And actually, it was the Lords where real strategic decisions were being made, and also because it surely shows the importance, therefore, of England's bicameral parliamentary structure. Because if the Lords had all been present in the House of Commons, who knows how freely their tenants and protégés would have felt and been able to debate. Incidentally, I can never say commentators without recalling the joke about Princess Potato wanting to marry the potato Eddie Waring and her dad telling her she can't because he's just a commentator. But I don't think anyone knows who Eddie Waring is anymore. Anyway, as a result of Sand's intervention, the King of Britain can was duly kicked down the road to the next session. Meanwhile, James was shocked when judges ruled on the contention that the claim of English votes for English laws only, let's call it a 17th century eval, was absolutely correct. Make James King of Great Britain and he'd have to start all over again with the lawmaking because the laws of England wouldn't fit. James was already feeling irritated, therefore, with his Parliament. There'd been something of a bust-up over the appointment of one of the MPs, which was disputed, and James had figured that he should rule on it and the Commons claimed it was their right to determine their own composition. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, the thing the Parliament did focus on, perhaps unsurprisingly, were their grievances. It might be with Salisbury's private prompting that they came up with a list, and it is a list which contains many happy echoes of our medieval podcast episodes. Do you remember wardship and purveyances? The rights of monarchs to hold minors in ward get their revenue and sell them off to the highest bidder, and the right to extract supplies for their armies by force. Ah, happy days. Well, no one liked them now any more than they ever had, and they wanted to kill them off, along with the plethora of monopolies granted to courtiers as well in Elizabeth's reign, the latter a more early modern sort of issue. So all that sounds fine, except you could hardly expect the king to accept this without a quid pro quo, an alternative way for the king to raise the revenues he'd thereby lose, and this parliament could not agree on how that might work. Now, if you are looking for an argument to support the monarchy in the looming Barney, otherwise known as the Civil War, here's one for you. The English monarchy was progressively becoming poorer, 
Partly, this was an Elizabethan legacy, since she and Burley had consistently failed to modernise the taxation system. Obviously, this was most popular with the ordinary folk of England, and since there was no mouse shit so mean as Elizabeth, it hadn't seemed to be a problem. Elizabeth had left debts of about 300,000 quid, the same as Mary, but Elizabeth had meanwhile fought a war against Europe's greatest empire for 18 years or so, and most of that 300,000 was covered by loans to be repaid and a subsidy in the process of being collected, so it was no more than a small hill of beans. But under James, spending would be a mega problem, and I mean mega with a capital M. And the truth is that Parliament would simply not agree to pay the monarchy what they needed. It was a consistently narrow-minded attitude on behalf of Parliament which would take the chaos of civil war to resolve. Well, James was thoroughly irritated by the lot of them, the lack of enthusiasm for his claim to be emperor of a greater Britain, the determination to make decisions about their own composition, their money dithering. So, on the 30th of May, he called the members of the lower house to Whitehall and he gave them a rocket about their contrariness and what he called giddy-headedness. We don't know exactly what he said, but here are a couple of possible bones of contention. As far as James was concerned, kings came first, Parliament later. So Parliament was at best a junior partner, and that's at best. Secondly, all parliamentary privileges proceeded from the king, and therefore, as I was constantly being told at school, privileges can be taken away as well as given. You know, like being able to not wear jackets on a very hot day. But in this particular example, the right to make laws, which could be considered more important than the jacket thing. He also considered that laws came from the king, not the parliament, based on the requirement for every law to have royal assent. Parliament was just a tool, a mechanism, a process. Well, this would have put the backup of the august members of Parliament good and proper, and I'm not even joking. Many of them believe that Parliaments went back to before Roman times and therefore predated kings, and that their privileges were therefore theirs by ancient right. There were plenty of lawyers in Parliament who firmly believed that the Constitution was a matter of balance, and it was their job to maintain said existing balance. Meanwhile, with all the dithering, Salisbury dropped the wardship and purveyance scheme and the lower house felt seriously misled. So, they decided to write to the king what they called, in classic passive aggression phase, the form of apology and satisfaction, as a justification for their approach so far. Now, it happens the apology and satisfaction was never finally agreed by the commons, for some, it was too aggressive. For others, it didn't go far enough. But it doesn't do to underplay its importance. James knew full well of its existence, and it was quoted extensively and referred to in later parliaments because it formed a fundamental statement of how Parliament saw itself and the Constitution. So they roundly rejected the idea that their rights and privileges were held by grace of the king. They were their right and due inheritance. It insisted on their right to be the sole judge of election returns, on the freedom of elections, of parliamentary speech and immunity of MPs from arrest. It was, essentially, in their minds, 
a conservative document in the sense that the way MPs saw what was going on was that they were faced by an innovative king seeking to arrogate new powers to himself and that it was Parliament, therefore, that sought to maintain the status quo against the background of rising absolutism on the continent. This is interesting from a historiographical perspective to boot. So the old Whig tradition was of a centuries-long battle between the king and Parliament, a Parliament determined to wrest power newly from the king. But innovation, as we have often said, was still a dirty word in 17th century England. It was the king who was innovating as far as MPs were concerned. Well, James had heard enough, and he threw a bit of a hissy fit, to be fair, and in July he prorogued Parliament. I think you probably know this, but proroguing means that Parliament still exists, so no new elections are needed, it's just a postponement of the sessions. And I think I'm right in saying, as I said before, this Parliament actually lasts until 1611. Anyway, we were talking hissy fits. So, in his winding up speech to Parliament, James thanked the Lords for their help. And then he turned to the lower house. I will not thank where I think no thanks due. You see, I am not of such a stock as to praise fools. You see how, in many things, you did not well. The best apology maker of you, for all his eloquence, cannot make all good. You have done things rashly. I wish you would use your liberty with more modesty in time to come. Well, burn, flee in air, or what? I am imagining 467 MPs slinking away, tail firmly between their legs, maybe between two files of lords holding sticks and carrying out a decimation. There have been many bunnies happier than James. He complained that in Scotland, although he ruled amongst men not of the best temper, whatever that means, they at least respected his proposals, whereas the English seemed determined to find fault with his propositions. We are admittedly a cussed lot. On the 20th of October, he announced that his style was now King of Great Britain, either way what anybody thought. It seems that although James was aware of and quite skilled at managing politics, he really had not managed this parliament well, and I'm not sure he ever really got the ship back on an even keel. It's difficult to think of Elizabeth and Burley ending a parliamentary session in such a state. Well, James had also mentioned external peace, of course, and there's a thing. Peace with Spain had been impossible while there was a war going on in Ireland and while the succession in England was unresolved. It was simply way too tempting for the Spanish to chance their arm in supporting the rebellion in Ireland. However, once Tyrone had submitted and James had succeeded to the throne, the way to peace was opened. James, of course, had a different perspective to the English. Scotland had never been at war with Spain and one of the first things he did was to order an end to hostilities at sea. Salisbury was very much on board with this strategy and it was really his negotiation that went on now. Cecil had adapted well to the new regime with James, albeit his style was different to Elizabeth's. James had his areas of interest, so foreign policy and religious discussion first and foremost. But outside of that, he was very much prepared to let the Privy Council do their thing and lead the way. He had 
far more important things to do with his time. These far more important things were referred to in a letter by the Archbishop of York, Matthew Hutton, which unfortunately and embarrassingly became public oops. They involved extravagance and an absolute obsession with hunting. James probably spent half of his time away from London. He wasn't keen on the place, and honestly, the hunting was poor there. Though these days, there are probably more foxes in London than Suffolk, I suspect. But generally, James headed out for East Anglia, often around Newmarket, which Salisbury found a pain in the watsit because contact was very difficult. Generally, court only joined James when he was on an official summer royal progress, not just hunting. But there was a benefit. Without James there, Salisbury, a man with a talent for administration, had room to breathe, spread his wings, take it to the limit, all that sort of thing. The Privy Council was dominated by three others in addition to Salisbury. There was the Earl of Worcester. He was master of the horse and therefore he had the king's ear because he was always with him while hunting, so he was a vital link between king and Privy Council. And then there were the Howards, the Earl of Northampton and the Earl of Suffolk. The four of them worked with James' idiosyncrasies. He particularly liked discussing business, for example, while walking around. He called them his deambulatory councils, which reminds me a bit of those dramas we used to have where high-powered businessmen would snap, walk with me, to their underlings, which always struck me as the most unlike the real world of business that I inhabited. But then I never thought the media had any idea of what business is actually like anyway. Salisbury dominated the negotiations with Spain. Initially, there was some resistance. So some thought that the Dutch must be involved in these negotiations and felt England were deserting them. But in fact, James had asked the Dutch to be involved and they said they'd only do so if recognised as a separate state first, which, of course, the Spanish would not suffer, and so the Dutch stayed away. Salisbury was very clever. He offered only vague concessions. Rather than formal toleration for Catholics, for example, he offered only vague commitments from James personally. He ducked any question of recognising a Spanish monopoly of trade in the New World, and therefore cleared the way for English merchants to trade with the Winders. Over the next decade, English trade boomed with Spain and in the Mediterranean, and exploration of North America could restart. The Treaty of London was signed in August 1604 and closed off with a grand banquet thrown by James where the idea of a Spanish marriage and a Spanish match was first mooted between Prince Henry and the Infanta of Spain. The reaction of the public, though, was not particularly enthusiastic. It seems the English had rather enjoyed fighting the Spanish. There were no public celebrations and bonfires. All was quiet and just a little bit sullen. Peace, huh? Oh well. Just have to go back to trading legally then. Bit of a bore. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now then, when the 1604 session of Parliament had been prorogued by the distinctly grumpy king in July 1604, the honourable members, as well as the less honourable and even the frankly disreputable ones, had been told to write a date for the next session of the 5th of November, 1605. So, presumably some of the more anxious ones scrawled in their diary, Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Although this being 17th century England, we have absolutely no idea how many different ways they spelled it. But, not before long that memorable date, a chain of events, which started with a note being handed to a servant of a Catholic Lord, Lord Monteagle, meant that after the words remember, remember the 5th of November, they would then scrawl gunpowder, treason and plot. And to find out why they might have scrawled this, although it's a racing certainty that I'm making the diary entry thing up, obviously, we will have to go back a step or two. Just to address you personally here, you may well, of course, have guessed that I am about to embark on a recounting of the tale of the gunpowder plot. I have to confess that my shoulders are sagging a little under the weight of history and expectation since I imagine that my fellow English folk will have done the event multiple times in their school career, or at least once, and probably some sort of project as a nine-year-old with impressions of Guido Fawkes' signature after he'd been tortured, maybe on some sort of document stained with tea to make it look original. So, telling the tale again is a weight of expectation. But of course to everyone else... You may well be thinking, gunpowder what? Guido who? So, you know, onward. My abiding memory of the gunpowder plot is very definitely of Guy Fawkes. I suppose because we, you know, burn him every year. The solid burghers of Swinkhamshire all gather, drink beer, eat sausages and talk about the weather while the effigy of a man goes up like a torch and we all cheer and let off fireworks in celebration. It's all more than a little gruesome, but you know, anything for a sausage. But really, the genesis was not with old Guido, but with one Robert Catesby a, of a prominent Catholic family, and interestingly a descendant of one William Catesby, chump of Richard III, who was executed in Leicester after the Battle of Bosworth Field. Things come around. Robert was a tall, good-looking man, charming, charismatic, almost mesmeric, for his chum, Lord Monteagle, he was the dear Robin, whose conversation gave us such warmth, and the only son that must ripen our harvest. However, as the Jesuit John Gerard noted, he was also very wild. And as another Jesuit wrote, he was beside himself with mindless fanaticism. He was wasting time when he was not doing something to bring about the conversion of the country. Catesby had unfortunately got involved in Essex's rebellion and so was a well-known troublemaker to the new regime. His friends Monteagle and Thomas Winter had been part of the seemingly inexhaustible stream of Catholic noblemen who had beaten a path to Spain to ask for material help in an invasion or rebellion. I seem to have written that so many times I should have it ready on the clipboard to just paste into the script. Anyway, during the Essex Rebellion thing, Catesby had managed to save himself through the good offices of one of his other mates, 
one Francis Tresham, son of Thomas Tresham, a very influential and rich Catholic nobleman in Northamptonshire, which was, it has to be said, very generous of Thomas, because while paying all his recusancy fees and building the intriguing Triangular Lodge, it had also cost him a thousand quid to dig his own son Francis out of the Essex Rebellion thing, let alone digging out Catesby. So, as we've heard, after high hopes, James had turned out to be just another prot. In addition, Catholic rebels had been deserted by their greatest hope and champion, the Spanish. Despite all their pleading, Philip went ahead and signed that blessed peace treaty with no mention of toleration. One of the pleaders who turned up at Philip's court was a product of St Peter's School in York, one Guy Fawkes, and he'd been disappointed like all the rest. So Fawkes had sold up and took himself to the Netherlands to fight for Spain and the faith in 1596. A Jesuit, after the plot had, well, you know, blown up, described him as something of a paragon. Devout, patient, pleasant of approach and cheerful of manner, opposed to quarrels and strife, loyal to his friends, and a man highly skilled in matters of war, though obviously opposed to quarrels and strife, obs. Now, obviously, this is not a particularly reliable account. The same Jesuit wrote highly favourable accounts of all the conspirators. And how skilled was Guy at military matters seems a little bit questionable. He'd not risen very high in the ranks of the Spanish army in six years of fighting in the Spanish Netherlands. But I guess he'd know his way around a barrel of gunpowder. And that was what was required here. And that knowledge earned him a dinner invitation to some lodgings in the Strand in London from one Robert Catesby. There he was given communion by John Gerard, a Jesuit who apparently knew nothing of the plot, and met up with John and Christopher Wright, Thomas Winter and Thomas Percy, and there a hot was platched. At the opening of the next session of Parliament, they would blow the whole lot of them sky-high. James, Prince Henry, hopefully Prince Charles, and all those scurvy MPs. Obs, it was a shame that there would be some Catholics amongst them, but hey, collateral damage was inevitable, and rather than the project should not take effect, if they were as dear to him as his own son, they should also be blown up. Catesby had rented rooms in a house next to the Parliament, from where they were going to tunnel underneath Parliament. And then a room came up for rent, which was right under the place. Well, that's a bit of providence, if you like. While everyone was being converted into very small pieces, a group in the guise of a hunting party would ride out from a hideout in the Midlands, capture the nine-year-old daughter of James and Anne, Princess Elizabeth, at Coventry, and she'd be told exactly what to do while Catholicism was restored, or else. It's a great plan. What could go wrong? Once they had the basement rented under the Houses of Parliament, all they had to do was transport the gunpowder over from another Catesby house in Lambeth, guarded by one Robert Keyes, over to Westminster, and then enjoy the summer in the countryside. The plot grew, with recruits such as Sir Everard Digby, Ambrose Rookwood and Francis Tresham. If Catesby did suffer scruples about the mayhem he planned, and many of his fellow plotters appears to have had, he was cleared of them by the Jesuit Henry Garnet, who told him, The multitude of innocents, or the harm which might ensue by their death, 
were not such that it did countervail the gain and commodity of the victory. To be fair to Garnet, Catesby phrased the question as a theoretical one. He didn't wander in and say, hey, I'm planning to blow up 600 or so folks, give me a pass from God on that, would you? Garnet would contend that he knew nothing of the actual plot. In October 1605, the conspirators gathered in London. Thomas Winter learned he was supposed to attend Parliament in the entourage of Monteagle, which must have been a worry, but then I guess he could just throw a sickie at the last moment. But then it turned out Prince Henry wouldn't be at the opening ceremony, so that was disappointing. They'd have to capture him afterwards or something. Rats. Then Winter brought more alarming news. Monteagle's servant had been handed a note on the 27th of October. And the note said, As you tender your life, devise some excuse to shift of your attendance at this Parliament, for God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. Who had written this note? It's called the Monteagle letter, by the way, and it still survives. Suspicion amongst the plotters fell on Thomas Tresham, since he was fond of his brother-in-law Monteagle, and so they roasted the lad on the 1st of November, but he fiercely denied it, and so we don't know for sure. So, the plotters talked it through. Fight or flight? What would Monteagle do? After all, he was a good Catholic, and he'd even tried to persuade Spain to invade his own country, so surely he wouldn't shot them. And the note was hardly specific. Monteagle would probably just think it the work of a crank. It was Thomas Percy who probably swung the argument on the night of the 3rd of November. They'd see it through. It was fight. So, Guy Fawkes, with the pseudonym John Johnson, took his way to the cellars with a slow match and a timer and waited. What, meanwhile, was happening behind the scenes? Well, Monteagle had not ignored the note. He had instead handed it on to Salisbury. Salisbury had shared it with the Privy Council, but no one was very convinced. But nonetheless, the Earl of Suffolk and Monteagle did a search, and in the cellars under Parliament, they did find a big man in a storeroom with a remarkably large consignment of wood. But the man was a lovely chap, and he convinced them it all just belonged to his boss Thomas Percy, so nothing about which knickers should be placed in any kind of twist. When they got back to court, though, Monteagle pondered all this aloud and wondered, why did Thomas Percy, of all people, have so much wood in a Westminster cellar? Well, I know the lad, of course. He's a good Catholic, by the way. Well, that awoke James's suspicious nature, and he sent Sir Thomas Nivett down for a closer look. Picture the scene. It's midnight, in a dark, damp cellar. Guy Fawkes is down there, big man, slow match, timer, must be tense. Thinking back to his earlier interview, did he convince them all? Next, a crashing at the door as Thomas Nivett and his men burst in. Nivett, unconvinced by the fully booted Jackson, had him arrested. Dragged back the faggot of wood, and hey, what do you know? Corned, gunpowder, barrels of the stuff, enough to blow everyone to kingdom come. By the time the news of the discovery hit the capital on the 5th, Catesby, Percy, Rookwood, Thomas Winter and the Wright brothers were flown. 
racing north with all the speed they could manage to their Midlands rebellion to raise a Catholic fire and seize the new queen-in-waiting, Elizabeth II. They were to meet Everard Digby and his Catholic gentry, cunningly disguised as a hunting party, at Dunchurch in Northampton. Dishevelled, Catesby arrived at the inn, while behind him the hue and cry started. He urged the gentry to rise with him, and no doubt there was much politeness. But as they all rode away, the vast majority of the gentry simply took other directions to that which Catesby took, and went home for a cup of cocoa and an early night. The increasingly small and increasingly desperate band rode on, from Catholic house to Catholic house. Digby wrote to Henry Garnet, the Jesuit superior, for his blessing, and received a reply from his messenger that instead of blessing the venture, Garnet had been horrified and marvelled they would enter into so wicked actions and not be ruled by the advice of friends. Digby was shocked. Catesby clearly hadn't given him in this impression. He rode on westward, heading with his desperate band to a safe house where they could make a last stand, Holbeck House in Staffordshire. While all this was going on, Guy Fawkes, meanwhile, was having his finest hour. Very brave, totally defiant and enormously uncommunicative. From the 7th to the 9th, while the Privy Council feared a rebellion in the Midlands, all they got from Fawkes was abuse of the Scots and that if he had succeeded, he'd have been delighted to blow the king back to his northern mountains. He was almost certainly tortured during these dangerous days, if his signature is anything to go by. Apparently James asked that he should be tortured as gently as possible, so I suppose they started off with a bit of tickling, maybe, or telling him endless dad jokes. Not sure. Shouldn't Jake, really. Obviously, he was, after all, tortured. In defence of the Privy Council, and indeed the English state, this was 1605, and England's record on judicial torture was far better than most, given common law. I say that because we have a teleseries a while ago where the phrase dark time in our history was used, usually a sign of what I believe is now called presentism. Fawkes was the only one of the rebels to be tortured, by the way. Anyway, back in Holbeck House, the brave and daring rebels, having Dorwood V for vendetta on their foreheads, presumably had on the way half-inched a load of gunpowder from Warwick Castle. This probably seemed like a good idea at the time. After all, revolutionaries and gunpowder do generally go well together. In this case, it proved a rather poor decision. They managed to set a load of it off, which burned a lot of their own people and terrified the rest and resulted in more rebels remembering that they'd left the gas on back home and they'd better nip off and deal with it instead of bringing down the evil Protestant king. And it also brought the law down on their necks a good deal earlier than it might have done in the form of Richard Walsh, the Sheriff of Worcestershire, who came along to find his source and, if he could please, have his gunpowder back. Just like Butch and Sundance, at 11 o'clock in the morning of the 8th of November, the rebels charged the posse. A defiant Catesby kissed his gold crucifix, brandished his sword and was killed by the same bullet that also mortally wounded Thomas Percy, fired by one John Street. The Wright brothers also died, but Ambrose, Rookwood, Thomas Winter and others were injured and dragged away for questioning. Tradition has it that Catesby crawled back into the house and died, clasping an image of the Virgin. Oh, but come on! On the 5th, as the news spread, the good citizens of London celebrated their deliverance and they lit bonfires 
all over the city. It was quite a party, as someone wrote, with a great ringing and as great a store of bonfires as ever I think was seen. And James was convinced that God had delivered him. Parliament declared a national day of thanksgiving, which is nice, and so bonfire night was born. Quite why just another failed plot against state had been so long celebrated is a bit of a poser. But despite the various objections, I personally am very glad it has. Enjoy setting off multiple enormous cakes of fireworks and building the village fire each year, and the butcher's sausages are simply the bee's buttocks. There are explanations, though, and theories, mainly connected with an association between bonfire night and Protestantism. In the 17th century, the Pope or the devil were commonly burned. On Catholic emancipation in the 19th century, diehards evoked the spirit of the 5th of November. But by then, England was becoming more secular, and so it's in 1790 that there's the first record of a small urchin doing their normal confidence trick of begging in the street so they could burn Guy Fawkes. And it was Fawkes that started to be burned instead. Which is so much better, of course, though not very strategic. Should be Catesby, really. Oh well. Incidentally, a family member has lived in Lewis, and by all accounts the party there is wild. Meanwhile, back at the 17th century ranch, Parliament was adjourned because of the fuss and didn't meet properly again until January 1606 when it was again adjourned for the trial of the traitors. Francis Tresham had been found in London but died of illness before the trial. The trial was an occasion of great spectacle. People paid for a good seat or any kind of seat. Edward Cook was in his prosecuting pomp and Everard Digby Robert Winter, John Grant and Thomas Bates were executed on the 30th of January 1606 at St Paul's Churchyard. On the 31st of January 1606, Thomas Winter, Ambrose Rookwood, Robert Keyes and Guy Fawkes were executed at Westminster in the Old Palace Yard. Henry Garnet was found, treated rather handsomely in the Tower, but no one was prepared to believe he could really have been so naive and not known about the plot, as though he was executed on the 3rd of May 1606. John Gerard, on the other hand, escaped the tower. So there we are, ladies and gentlemen, the gunpowder, treason and plot, and the creation of a little piece of English cultural life. Now then, I'm a bit behind with the writing, which is, you know, a bit of a thing, but as it happens, next week I have for you what which I would consider a treat. I have been doing an undergraduate diploma in English Social and Local History from the lovely Department for Continuing Education at Oxford University, and there was a chap called Stephen Mileson who took us for medieval England. Turns out Stephen was doing a major research project in South Oxfordshire, which is my hood. He has now completed a book on the fascinating, and I thought absolutely unknowable subject, how the peasantry saw their environment and landscape all the way back as far as Anglo-Saxon England. He takes the story all the way up to 1650 and the way he's pieced together shards of evidence is a triumph. So next week, it's a special. Peasant perceptions of landscape in South Oxfordshire and I swear it's a killer. It's a subject that made me realise just how refreshing and different history is when you look at it from the angle of ordinary people as well as the great, the good and the, frankly, a little bit dodgy. After that, hopefully I will have done my knitting and we can go back to the knitting on the other side, by the way, this week, for members, is my second instalment of the English Hat Drink with multiple rants about beer, I am sorry to say. 
just so you know. Anyway, gentle listeners, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all your comments and good luck and have a brilliant week. <laughs>